You've got shit. I've got shit. We've all got shit. So let's therapize that shit with your host, me, Joy Gerhard. Please note, I am not a therapist. I cannot and do not diagnose anyone or prescribe anything. This is just me, someone who struggles with mental illness, emotions, and intrusive thoughts, sharing what skills I've used and how I've used them. Also, trigger warning, in this podcast, I talk about sensitive topics including mental illness, suicidal ideation, self-harm, rape, childhood sexual assault, trauma, and more. I also swear here and there, so listener discretion is advised. If you're new to the podcast, some context for you. I've gotten a ton of value out of doing group therapy and watching others process their shit. In group, I can see other people's patterns and behaviors much more clearly because they aren't my patterns and behaviors, but rather they're adjacent to mine. It's such a relief. I want to share this relief with you via this podcast, wherein I practice skills while actually in the thick of shit. Each episode, I typically do an introduction and provide some context. Then I play a recording of me actively dealing with shit. This isn't me talking about psychology or theories. I'm actually in distress, having strong emotions and strong urges. You're going to hear me crying, angry, numb. But my intention is always to move through an emotion, never to stay there. So stick with me, and we'll actually come out on the other side by the end of the episode. Alrighty, let's hop to it. Welcome, welcome. Every once in a great while, I feel the need to like introduce myself again to any new listeners, because I don't do it every episode. Who is this person that you're listening to? Hi. I'm Joy, and I uh, my pronouns are she, her, they, them. I am a former marine biologist, a former small business owner, a couple different businesses, former community organizer, and a current diagnosee of PTSD, CPTSD, major depressive disorder, and autism spectrum disorder. So... That's fun. <laughs> as we're going to get into in the recording that I'm about to play for you, I am, as it turns out, more than just my diagnoses. I like to build websites for fun for myself. I don't like building them for other people, but I really enjoy building them for me. I dabble in graphic design quite a bit. I love doing the sorts of jigsaw puzzles that any other person would look at and go, dear God, please no. I like embroidery. I like running stairs, lifting weights, reading contemporary romance novels at the beach, and I have this podcast. Um, currently, I am about a, a week after having a significant uh, chronic pain flare up. I have this condition, uh, pelvic floor spasm, that I manage most of the time by getting Botox injections into my pelvic floor. This time, the actual injections themselves triggered a spasm, which has never happened before. So my pain level's been pretty high. I talked about that in the last episode. And when I finally catch up, because I've got like a 10-month lag right now between the recordings and when I do my commentary and post the episode, eventually there will be an episode that I post where I'm using skills in the midst of having extreme, extreme pain. So that'll be fun. Additionally, other noteworthy things about me, I am white. 
I am 39 years old. I am queer. I'm also genderqueer. I'm also ex-evangelical, and I live with my parents. So that's me. Welcome to the podcast. Okay, let's move on to the main event. Uh, Some brief orientation before I play today's recording for you. Most of the skills that I reference are from the DBT manual by Marshall Linehan. DBT stands for Dialectic Behavioral Therapy, and it's the therapy that has, at least so far, worked the best for me. I've linked the DBT manual in the description, both as a PDF and where you can buy a hard copy. Whenever I'm quoting the DBT manual, or really anyone else's work other than my own, I will turn on a little bit of reverb so that I sound like I'm in a Franciscan crypt, or more accurately, a Franciscan crypt bathroom. In this episode, I'll be referencing handouts from several of the DBT modules, of which there are four, mindfulness, interpersonal effectiveness, emotion regulation, and distress tolerance. So when I mention a handout that I'm reading from, I'll say something like, this is from interpersonal effectiveness handout five, or whatever, so you can follow along if you're so inclined. And before I forget, a huge thank you to my Patreon supporters. We've got a nice little group here going on. Sunny and Juicy is our newest. So thank you, Sunny and Juicy. A huge thank you to Anonymous. I actually know who they are, but I'm not going to add them here for donating as well. Thank you to Andrew, who is also the reason why I have a pop filter. So you're not hearing a lot of sounds. Thank you, Andrew. And of course, the OGs, Anne and Ruth, my sisters who have been with me since the beginning. You all are amusing rainbow trout and are 93.8% of the reason why this podcast exists for public consumption. So thank you so very much from the bottom of my heart. And if you, dear listener, would like to support this podcast, the link to my Patreon is in the description. All right, moving on to today's episode. It's a sad one. I'm not sad right now because I'm recording this 10 months after the recording you're about to hear. And that's noteworthy, actually, that I'm not still sad for the same reason that I was sad 10 months ago. I'm taking in that information to remind myself that my emotions don't last forever. And that's not to invalidate them, but rather to keep me from hopping on the it's hopeless thought train. (laughs) At any rate, we're going to talk about some heavy shit today, which is weird because I know normally this podcast is such a puddle of sunshine and elasma branks, but in the recording you're about to hear, I'm going to get into (laughs) what I jokingly refer to as my disclaimers, i.e. the things that I consider disqualifying about myself, the reasons why I'm unlovable, basically, why I think, why I have the thought that I'm unlovable. That's key. So self-harm is going to come up. Rape is going to come up. Risky sexual behaviors are going to come up. And also there's going to be some ableism, mostly my own, aimed at myself. Um, Because the recording you're about to hear was made on May 16th, 2022, 10 days after I was diagnosed with autism. Incidentally, today is April 1st, 2023. So happy April Fool's Day. Um, I'm also pretty sure that I made this recording at night after my folks had gone to bed, because I'm talking pretty quietly. So my apologies for the audio quality. I really don't have anything else to say to set this up. So we're just going to go ahead and uh, dive right on in. Past joy, take it away. I'm not entirely sure what I'm doing here. Um, I have been 
crying off and on, kind of all day. And normally when this happens, it's because I forgot to take my meds. Um, I'm on uh, 100 milligrams of Zoloft that I take in the morning and on the days when I forget it, well, usually the day after I forget it, it's just an emotional shit show and I will cry at the drop of a hat, feel pretty hopeless and despondent. And yeah, I didn't forget my meds recently. And yet I am crying intermittently. So I figured I would just practice some mindfulness to current emotion. There it is, Emotion Regulation Handout 22. At the top of this page, I have a note from my DBT instructor that says, there's nothing we can feel that we can't tolerate. <laughs> I want to be like, fuck you, dude. I mean, it's true. I know it's true. And yeah, it fucking sucks. So I'm actually going to go back one handout to Emotion Regulation Handout 21, which is an overview of managing really difficult emotions. There's three main parts of this section. Mindfulness of current emotions, managing extreme emotions, and a troubleshooting section. So how do I know I'm having an extreme emotion? <laughs> Symptoms of extreme emotions include, and these are notes that I took during my DBT skills group, all or nothing thinking, panic, thinking I'm right, or being super rigid, inability to think, crying really hard, strong urges or urgency, <laughs> loud, getting loud, having a lot of energy, body temperature and heart rate increasing, getting shaky. I'm having a lot of thoughts come up today. A lot of thoughts about um, how alone I feel right now. A lot of kind of self-pitying thoughts, which isn't really all that descriptive or specific. I'm feeling pretty sorry for myself right now. I was talking to my first serious boyfriend today. He and I have been friends for well over 10 years. Um, we dated when I was in grad school and he's still one of my favorite people on the planet. But I don't know what's going on with me, man. I mean, I got off the phone with him and was just sitting reading a book at the park and fucking losing my shit, man. There was a lot of sadness that came up. A lot of grief. It wasn't grief aimed at, like, you know, the loss of a relationship that ended. Oh my god. Hold on. In 2009? Is that right? Almost 15 years ago, then. But just more the awareness of, like, where I am now and where I thought I would be. It's one of those sneaky, like, going about my life, doing my shit, and it kind of comes out, it feels like it comes out of nowhere. And I know all emotions are caused, so clearly there's an inciting incident, whether it's an actual event or a thought that I had. And I think I'm idealizing, I'm, I have selective memory, because the thought I had is I remember what it used to feel like to matter to somebody, and missing that feeling matter in the way where I was a priority. And I've been having these kind of, these thoughts a lot this last week. So, um, 
I'm recording this on May 16th. And on May 6th, I was diagnosed with autism. Did a whole super long interview, questionnaires, a bunch of stuff. I've been having a lot of feelings since then. A lot of anger, actually. But one of the thoughts that I'm noticing come up a lot is, oh, fuck, another thing. My experience of myself is that I'm a very hard person to love. That's the thought I'm having. There is no such fact as hard to love. What would a picture of that look like? I know that's an interpretation that I have. And I have it anyway. I have this list of things that I think are like... (laughs) What do they list on houses? Like full disclosures of here we have to admit that there was a, a murder in this home and there's also toxic mold and you know, water damage and, oh, we have termites. Like there's things you're supposed to disclose. And the longer I live, the longer that list gets. And this is where the self-pity comes in. So I'm having the thought that this is just super self-indulgent and I'm just wallowing. I'm having the thought that I am wallowing. It was bad enough after my first rape as an adult. Um... Well, more specifically, after my PTSD symptoms started, which... So I was raped in 2012. Two and a half years later is when my symptoms started. I started having panic attacks, and I started self-harming and having suicidal ideation. And one of my coping mechanisms, and I say coping in quotes, wasn't effective in the long term, and in the short term, it was... A coping mechanism. I got on Tinder and I slept around a lot. And I learned later this thing called trauma repetition, where people who experience trauma will try to relive their trauma in a way that they can change the ending. And that was my favorite part. My favorite part of going and hooking up with somebody was that at the end I could leave. Didn't matter if it was at three in the morning, I could get in my car and I could drive home, which I didn't get to do when the first rape happened. So I had this list. I'm a rape victim, and I have chronic delayed onset dissociative PTSD. And then I was raped three more times, four, five. I've lost track now. And I was kind of aware that my scars were like a... I had the thought that my scars were like a neon sign flashing, damaged goods, damaged goods. And I had a dude tell me that, that I was damaged and that self-harming was something that teenage girls did, that I was mentally unbalanced, and that, that any other guy would have walked out on me by then. And I know, logically, that so Maya Angelou said when, when someone shows you who they are, believe them the first time. It's lovely when somebody who has those beliefs says them out loud in a way that you can't ignore, and it still fucking sucked. But the list kept getting longer. Now I have two psych hospitalizations from last year. I have additional burnout from additional jobs. I can't seem to hold down a job for any length of time without getting burnt out. I was diagnosed with major depressive disorder and now autism. 
And the irony being that like PTSD and depression didn't feel like the end of the world. That's not true. That is not true. I argued with my therapist for six months about my PTSD diagnosis and she'd gotten out the DSM and we'd gone through each one and checked all the different boxes and they were just check mark after check mark after check mark. And there was no way for me to argue it. And yet I did. And I argued it vehemently for six months. But there was something different about that and about the depression too. And so much as I wasn't born with it, there's my ableism showing right there, right? Clearly, I think there are levels of disability and something that I acquire through life acquire over the course of my life is different than something I'm born with. And I'm having the thought that when it's something I'm born with, it makes me broken in a different way. And there's no, there's no cure for autism. I mean, fuck, there's no cure for PTSD either. There's treatment for it. But just like if I were to put together a profile of myself and do all my disclosures. The list keeps getting longer. And I'm having the thought that it makes me unlovable, undesirable, unworthy. And um, the autism one feels like it hurts more. And I don't know if that's because it's relatively new. I mean, I had some suspicions. I've had suspicions for years, actually. There were things that I would do and I'd go, huh. No, that can't possibly be what that is. I'm just weird. But there were signs all the way back to toddlerhood. Mental illness is like just a very fertile breeding ground for invalidation. There's an awesome TikToker who has a series that's the the invalidation superstore. The account is not like the others underscore blog. Here, I'm going to play it for you. Hi, sorry. I I don't know if I'm in the right place. Is this the invalidation superstore? Come on in. So I have PTSD. Are you a veteran? No, um, no, I'm not a veteran. That was just a for example. Do you have like a like a menu I could see? Here you are. One of my favorite is everybody goes through stuff, so stop being over dramatic. This is a huge selection. Now, are you familiar with the I know someone else who went through the same thing who doesn't have PTSD? I would never even have thought of that's totally underrated. And I see you've got some packages here. I have the you're not a veteran package, which includes things like you don't really know what PTSD is unless you're a veteran. That's a really good one. The family and friends package is a great deal right now at its discounted rate. And this includes things like you'll get over it eventually. You're a survivor. Just focus on that. And also you can't change the past. Just let it go. Genius. It comes with a complimentary. You just need to change your perspective. I think I'm going to go with the friends and family package because I think that's the one I'll get the most use out of. Excellent choice. And there is one on autism too. Please hold. Welcome to the Invalidation Superstore. I might be autistic. Do you have a name for that? I have got some great things for you. Here's a menu for you. Oh, this is so exciting. The school package 
comes for all ages, there's always going to be someone saying, well, you're very high functioning. If you were autistic, why weren't you diagnosed until now? You can make eye contact, but you don't look autistic. You're so smart, I never would have known. I love it. The school package comes with a bonus where people talk to you like you're a child. This is perfect. The family and friends package is great, especially if you're diagnosed as an adult. Then you get things like, we would have known if you were autistic. They always think they're right. Please, you're doing fine. You're just doing this to make me look bad. You're not autistic, you're just quirky. My mom is gonna love saying that. There's always, everyone's a little autistic. The doctor's add-on, it's things like, you're too old to be diagnosed with autism, you're too high functioning. Everyone these days thinks they're autistic. I'm a doctor, I would know. This is great. So what do you think? I think I'm gonna have to take the school package and the family and friends package. Great choice. And we've got one for depression too. Welcome to the Invalidation Superstore. I have very severe major depressive disorder. Okay. I have a great deal on a bundle of things that people say when they're trying to make you feel better that totally do the opposite. Like, keep your chin up, just think positively. Come on, things will get better. If I complain about it, someone's totally gonna say, well, at least they're trying, you should be grateful. This package is full of things that people say when they have no understanding of depression. Like, you're lazy, why don't you try harder? That's not an excuse. Suck it up. How can you be depressed when there are good things going on? But you look fine. You don't act depressed. I also have a full selection of helpful comments like just get some more sleep. You don't need those pills. You just need to go for a walk. I also have you're embarrassing me. It's just be happy for me. That's not that bad. Stop crying for attention. You don't even have a reason to be depressed. Why are you being so dramatic? This is why no one wants to hang out with you. I've also got a package of things for people who leave marks on their body. Like, why are you doing this? You just want attention. There's so many. I can also give you a grab bag of just like a few different things. Ooh, that. I want that. One of my exposure tasks right now is to do a values inventory. I have a really hard time thinking about the future. I have a hard time imagining things that I haven't seen before. My older sister, hi Ruth, is amazing at it. She can picture things that don't exist yet. She's a visionary. She can envision things that don't exist yet. I don't have that skill. And... Thinking about the future is very, very scary because I also have one of those lovely PTSD symptoms, a sense of foreshortened future where I thought I would be dead by the age of 40, which is in a year and a half. So that's scary. But at any rate, this exposure task comes from a book, I think, The Confidence Gap and asks a hypothetical, like in a world where you had unlimited confidence, what would you do? And there's a bunch of prompts like, how would you behave differently? How would you walk and talk differently? How would you play, work, and perform differently? How would you treat others differently? Your friends, relatives, partner, parents, children, and work colleagues. How would you treat yourself differently? How would you treat your body? How would you talk to yourself? How would your character change? All of those preceded by the phrase, in a world where you had unlimited confidence. And I've been doing this exposure task for the last week and have felt like I'm going to puke. <laughs> like starting about an hour before I actually do it. Because it's the my exposure stuff is the first thing I do when I wake up. I wake up, I go grab some yogurt or whatever. And then I come back and sit in my room and do my exposure. And I feel like I'm going to puke the entire time leading up to doing this. 
while I'm doing it. I started at 20 minutes of going through and answering these questions and had to stop. I couldn't, I couldn't hack it at 20 minutes. So my therapist and I agreed to move it down to five. And I still feel like I'm going to puke the entire time. I don't understand what that is. I think it's fear. Um, but I don't typically associate vomiting with fear. That feels more like a disgust response. Uh, but at any rate... As I'm doing this exposure task, I have to answer uh, a bunch of, I have to enter in like, what's the worst thing that can happen while I'm doing exposure? What do I think will happen? If that happens, like what's the threat or the feared outcome as a result? What is valid about my response to this exposure task? What did I learn during this exposure task? And one of the things that keeps coming up is how big a fucking hit it was to my confidence to have my former partner break up with me right after my second psych hospitalization. I'm not mad at him about that anymore. I understand why he did it. And I honestly think he was doing his best. Not even sarcastically or ironically, I honestly think he was doing his best and he felt like he was in over his head and couldn't do it anymore. And I get that. And uh, it's still like, there's a message that I added to that. There was a meaning that I added to that, that uh, I wasn't worth sticking around for at my lowest points. And there's a dialectic there, right? There's a both and. Like, he needed to have his boundaries. They were, they wouldn't take me. The hospital wouldn't take me, and I didn't want to have a suicide attempt on my hands because I know that these things become addictive, and it trains my brain that this is what I need to do in order to cope, and I didn't want to train my brain to do that, so I self-harmed in order to get them to take me, and I'm not proud of the fact that I did that, and <laughs> in DBT, there's a an entire section called interpersonal effectiveness, and on interpersonal effectiveness handout three, which is overview of obtaining objectives skillfully, the very top of the page says clarifying priorities. How important is getting what you want slash obtaining your goal, keeping the relationship, maintaining your self-respect? So there's three things, three priorities to look at in any interpersonal situation. What is my objective? Like, what is the thing I want? How do I want the other person to see me when we're done with this interaction? And how do I want to see myself? And to identify the priority, the question I like to ask is, if I could have only one, which would I pick? And in the case of getting into the hospital, the most, the most important thing in that moment was my objective. So I sacrificed my self-respect to get my objective, and I sacrificed my relationship to get my objective. And that was a boundary for him, my former partner. That was a boundary. He couldn't be with myself on, and I don't blame him for that. And I wish it hadn't ended up that way. So it really fucking sucks. And I'm also grateful that 
he let me know then, as opposed to like five years down the road. I'm grateful that he ended things sooner rather than later. Doesn't make it easier per se. And that fucking thought that I am unlovable, that my disclosure list keeps getting longer and longer, that's a really, that's an invasive thought. It's getting in there and taking root and pushing other thoughts out. And I know it's a thought. It is not a fact. There's part of me that's like, okay, there are people who love me who have not you know, ended their relationships with me, their friendships with me or my family in the midst of all of this. So clearly the people who know me still care about me. And the thought that I have very quickly, immediately after saying that, is that who's going to want to get to know me now? I don't like this. I don't like these thoughts. I don't want to be this person. I don't want to be somebody who, whose confidence is this fickle this easily dismantled. I remember a concept from one of my biology classes in college, I think it was, the difference between resilient and resistant ecosystems. Resistant ecosystems don't really, aren't really affected by most changing things, climate and seasonal changes and various and sundry things, but if something happens that does actually impact them, they don't bounce back from it. So that's resistant. Think of the redwoods, sequoias. Like, these things can survive forest fire and drought and a bunch of other things. And if something does happen to kill a bunch of sequoia trees, they're not going to come back anytime soon. Compare that to a resilient ecosystem like prairies. Prairies, you know, they'll go up in flames super, super fast, but they'll be back next year, you know? And I was talking to one of my therapists one day about my childhood sexual abuse and about how, like, people who groom children also groom their families. And I was like, what chance did any of us have to know this was happening. What chance did my parents have of being able to pick up on something that, like, these predators, they're really, really good at what they do. And so I was asking my therapist, how do you, like, what does a parent do that is effective? Because you can't protect your kid from every conceivable evil out in the world. And she said that the most effective thing she knows to do when she works with families is to help parents teach their kids how to be resilient. And there was a part of me that was like overjoyed by this and super relieved. And then there was a part of me that was really angry about it because the relief part is like, oh, First off, resilience is a skill. It can be learned. And what a lovely skill to be able to learn because it means that you're not like up a creek when shit happens because shit's going to happen. So it's lovely to be able to bounce back from shit happening. And that feels like a much more accessible thing than trying to control and 
protect myself from every conceivable possible bad thing that could happen. And the anger that I was feeling, I know it's acceptance, but what it felt like was resignation of like, the thought I had was, shit's going to happen. We're not going to try to prevent shit from happening. It's going to happen. So let's focus on resilience instead of trying to prevent shit from happening. And part of me was like, yeah, but shouldn't we try just a little bit to prevent shit from happening? Shouldn't we try just a little bit to keep kids safe? And so both of those things happened at the same time. Both of those thoughts, both of those Both of the accompanying emotions happened at the same time. So there's a dialectic. I can be really angry that shit happens and also acknowledge that the most effective thing for me to do is to be resilient, to practice resilience. I don't feel resilient right now. They just keep it. Things just keep adding on. And it's fucking overwhelming, man. Like, it's it's a lot. Um, since the breakup, I've come out to my parents. And I'm still unemployed. I've been doing exposure for two months. And I was just diagnosed with another thing. All the diagnoses I've had, this one feels like the most of all, like, yeah, obviously, of course, this is the case. Um, and I'm still fucking angry about it. Because I feel so othered. I was talking to my sister, Ruth, the older one. Hi, Ruth again. Yesterday, and she was asking some questions about what it felt like for me to talk to people. And that by and large, there's like three or four people in the world that I can talk to and it doesn't feel like any effort. And for everyone else, it does feel like effort. Like for those three or four people, it feels like talking in my native language. And then for everybody else, it feels like I'm doing a simultaneous translation. I lived in France for six months, five months, something like that when I was an undergrad and did all my classes in French. Um, I think I knew two English speakers there. And it was exhausting because I would have all these thoughts, but I would have them in English and I couldn't translate them into French. I could do a half-assed, not half-assed, I was putting my entire ass into it, but I was doing a subpar job. It's not that I wasn't communicating the way I wanted to communicate. I was translating my thoughts into second grade grammar and vocabulary. And so I was not accurately representing myself. And it drove me crazy. I was so frustrated by that. It gave me just oh so much compassion for non-native English speakers who immigrate to the U.S. and then get treated like they're idiots. (laughs) by English speakers who speak exactly one language. Yeah, that language barrier. And it's so strange. The ease of communication in those few outliers. And the concern that I have now, which is how I got off on this tangent, is like when my sister asked me that, and I told her what my experience was like, 
I don't want her changing her behavior around me because she's having the thought. I won't talk to Joy. She'll think it's too much work to talk to me. Because now she knows, right? I don't want other people to be making decisions about what they include me or not include me in based on how they think my experience is going to go. Like, just because it's effort doesn't mean it's bad. And there are times when I have plenty of energy to put forth to that effort. And then there are other times when I don't. But I need to be able to choose those and to be able to say, yes, I can talk. No, I can't talk. I just have all these concerns. When I was diagnosed with PTSD and started talking to my friends and family about it, there were all of these misconceptions, all of these judgments, all of these assumptions. I was working not just against a baseline of zero knowledge. I was working against incorrect knowledge. And I gotta do it again. God fucking damn it. And even if I had boundaries and was like, okay, mom and dad, here's my diagnosis. If you want to know more about it, here's a website. There's a, a website that was kind of my first foray into looking into it a little bit and seeing what questionnaires there were and ways to get a little bit more clarity. It's called Embrace Autism. I'll put a link in the description. But it's put together by a woman who was diagnosed as an adult with autism. And it's lovely that she was a late diagnosis and that she's also a woman. And I'm like, hey, it's embrace-autism.com. But I could just, you know, give them that link and say, any questions you have, read this. Because I don't know that I have the wherewithal to actually answer questions. More to the point, I don't have the wherewithal to correct incorrect assumptions. Like the fucking invalidation superstore. But clearly, in any future relationship, if I ever end up in a future relationship, I'm going to have to explain myself at some point. I'm going to have to articulate to a future partner what my needs are, what my boundaries are. And I am having all of this hopelessness come up over something that hasn't even happened yet, and that is not currently happening, nor is there a chance of it happening in the very near future. It's not like I have to be prepared for this by the end of the week. And I'm feeling overwhelmed right now. And when I feel overwhelmed, I start fortune-telling and projecting how I think the future is going to go based off of how I feel right now. I'm just fucking discouraged. I did all this cope ahead before I had my assessment. Cope ahead is a another DBT skill. Cope ahead is uh, one of the ways to reduce vulnerability to emotion mind. Uh, it is emotion regulation handout 19. And I was doing a bunch of cope ahead to the, what I thought was how the, the end of the assessment was going to go. I thought my assessor was going to say, okay, well, thanks for chatting with me. I will put together my thoughts and write up a report and I'll get that to you in two weeks. And I would spend two weeks not knowing, but that's not what happened. What happened was that at the end of the assessment, they said, I can confidently say that I think you meet criteria for autism, which was a huge relief, huge, huge relief that they actually believed what I said 
and took my articulation of my experience as valid and significant enough to warrant a diagnosis. What the fuck? And I started crying because I was just like, excuse me, what? You believe me? Okay. And then almost immediately after that, I started feeling angry. There was a huge relief of like, oh God, I don't have to do more assessments or find somebody who will actually diagnose me. I don't have to convince her. She believed me. And then right behind it was like, oh fuck, I have autism. And that's another thing to add to my list. Really what I'm noticing is I have my list of disclosures and no house is ever sold with just a list of disclosures. Like you don't put together a real estate offering and say, okay, come check out this house. It has termite damage and water damage and toxic mold. And a body was found buried in the basement. Typically what you, what you have is come see this two bedroom, one and a half bath house with a covered porch and um, central heating and central air, gas appliances, double pane windows, and also a crime scene in the basement. But like you list all of the, the selling features in addition to the disclosures. Now, what I'm noticing the more I talk is that I'm not also listing my selling features to use the real estate parlance. I don't really feel like I have access to those right now. But it certainly would explain why I feel so fucking hopeless and why my confidence is so low today. Because I am not being dialectic about it. I'm not seeing the both. And yes, I have autism. And yes, I have PTSD. And what skills do I have? Yes, I have major depressive disorder. And those mental illnesses or mental disorders loom large right now. And talking to my friend that I dated almost 15 years ago reminded me of who I was then before all of this had happened. I was a different kind of shit show. I had no emotional intelligence, none. In fact, the first time I ever remember saying the phrase, I feel sad, was to him like a year after the breakup about something completely unrelated to the breakup. But like, I didn't have any access to describe my emotions. I didn't learn how to put labels on my emotions until I took the DBT skills group. And the only reason I can do that now is because I have the book and I carry around it with me everywhere I go. And it has emotion regulation handout six, which is 10 pages long, each page for one of the primary emotions. And it describes synonyms and prompting events for that emotion and prompting interpretations of events for that emotion and biological changes and experiences. So what it feels like inside my body for each emotion and the expressions or actions, what it looks like on the outside for each emotion and the echoes and after effects of each emotion. And I use this thing like it's my fucking Bible. So when he and I dated, I was not a great partner. <laughs> Neither of us were really, which he has acknowledged as well. But like, I couldn't communicate effectively, didn't know what boundaries were, <laughs> didn't know it was okay to have boundaries, didn't know how to identify them, didn't know how to communicate them, didn't know how to enforce them. 
I didn't know what I was feeling except for anger. I knew when I felt angry and that was about it. I didn't know how to make requests. I didn't know how to validate him or me. I really didn't know shit. So while my disclosures list has lengthened considerably, I can't say that I wish to be back as that person. What was I? 23, 24, 25, somewhere in there. I was an idiot. That's a judgment. I did not have effective relationship skills. I was ineffective in my relationship. I was ineffective around my emotions. I could not tolerate distress. I had no emotional intelligence, no self-awareness. And clearly there was somebody who looked at that dumpster fire and said, hey, I'd like to date her. Dumpster fire is a judgment. I hear it. I hear it. And on the whole, I would much rather date somebody who's been through shit and who has learned as a result of being through shit how to regulate their emotions and communicate and be effective in relationships and tolerate distress. Like, I would much rather have that as a partner than somebody who hasn't done any of that work because they haven't had anything that prompted doing any of that work. So logically, I know that it's likely there are people out in the world who have that same thought process and who would look at me and go, hey, spot on. I'm down with you. Like, I'm for this. Let's try it out. And I still real, still feel really, really fucking sad. Like, really fucking sad. Because all of it hurts. I saw a TikTok and I wish I could find it and I can't remember who it was. It was a woman talking about getting diagnosed as an adult. And the diagnostician said that they never got to do cases like this. Cases of people who get diagnosed with autism as an adult. We don't have any traumatic invalidation associated with it. Because almost everybody who is diagnosed late in life has been invalidated that entire time. And this woman didn't because her parents, while they didn't know that she was autistic, just accepted that she had certain needs and they met those needs. And I, I don't know, feeling a lot of sadness around it, I guess. I'm going to stop talking now and go back to reading my novel that has me crying constantly. Welcome back to the future, to not crying joy. All right, so I mentioned that I was working on an exposure task from a book, or I actually don't know what the original thing was, some sort of publication called The Confidence Gap by Russ Harris. And I talked about it in the previous episode, episode 33. Um, If you're interested in taking a look at that, it's linked in the description. Another thing I mentioned in the recording was that I... Didn't think I was going to tell my parents, and I finally have told them about three weeks ago. It took me 10 months to finally feel ready to tell them. More accurately, it took me 10 months to determine what I need to put in place in terms of boundaries so that I could feel safe telling them. I mean, ultimately, it took me 10 months to figure out how to set myself up powerfully so that I could tell them and not be absolutely crushed by their reaction. It took me 10 months to determine that I wanted them to know from a place of wise mind and not from an emotion-minded place, or at least an exclusively emotion-minded place. 
eventually I will post an episode on how I did that, how I set myself up around that. But that'll be in a while because, as I've said, I'm 10 months behind. But I'm going to go ahead and spoil it for you. I use the Copahead skill, which is an emotion regulation skill in DBT and is detailed on emotion regulation handout 19, build mastery and Copahead. So in the recording you just heard, I was lamenting having to educate people about my diagnosis and also not working from a neutral place of folks having no knowledge, but having to work against incorrect knowledge. And I'd done that with PTSD. I was anticipating having to do that again, having to educate about autism and working against stereotypes and assumptions and misinformation. Part of why it took me 10 months to actually tell my folks is because I had to practice accepting that if I wanted to tell them and simultaneously make sure that they were interacting with correct information about what autism is, I was going to have to put some work into educating them because I didn't and don't trust their ability to determine what sources of information like stuff online, publications, research, whatever, are actually reliable and accurate resources that truly reflect the autistic experience. Information that is created and put out into the world by folks who have autism. And it took me 10 months to accept that I was going to have to curate some information for them. Of course, at the time of the recording, I don't know any of that yet. Um, But sitting where I am now, that's what it took for me to get to a place where I could feel safe telling them. If you want to go check out the curation that I did, (laughs) I built a website because of course I did. It's autistic.joygerhard.com and uh, it's where I put kind of a, a primer as to what autism is just in a very broad sense, but also included my own personal experience of it, as well as a bunch of like external resources and an entire page on what to say and what not to say to someone with autism. So you can go check that out. So I want to highlight a skill that I was using here that I didn't even realize I was using at the time. Listening back, I'm like, oh God, yeah, that's absolutely a skill. I was using the distract skill, which is on Distress Tolerance Handout 7, entitled, you guessed it, Distracting. It's part of the family of skills that I've heard several folks refer to as buffer skills, which is to say that it's one of the skills that I use while in distress in order to bring down my emotions so that my wise mind can kick in and I can be effective. The distract skill has seven subcategories of things to do to distract ourselves. We can distract with activities, with contributing, with comparisons, with different emotions, with pushing away, with other thoughts, and with other sensations. And unbeknownst to myself in this recording, I was using comparisons. Typically, I have a lot of judgment around comparisons because I see the way they're used to invalidate people and also dehumanize people. Thinking of like, oh, you're sad? Well, there are kids in Africa who have it way worse than you do. Which is, again, simultaneously invalidating of the person you're talking to and also dehumanizing of kids in any country in Africa. I don't think comparisons are effective when achieved externally, like when somebody on the outside is like forcing you into them, or when I'm doing it against my will myself, for me. Oh, you know, cheer up, at least you're not in high school anymore. And really, the only way I like to use the comparison skill is as a reminder to myself of where I used to be. I'm going to say more about this to clarify. I like to remember, hey, that heartache you felt from that breakup 15 years ago, you're not still sad about that. 
which means that that heartache eventually stopped. It means you survived it. Or, hey, you think you don't have skills? Well, remember where you were before you went to therapy and how you couldn't even identify a boundary if it bit you in the ass? And how you were judging the fuck out of everyone, including yourself? You have skills, so you do that less now. Because I'm not always aware or mindful of the skills that I have. I've talked before about the competency. I've called it the competency hierarchy, and I'm moving away from any sort of hierarchy. So let's call it tiers. The competency tiers. It describes four different states of being around a given skill. And I have a graphic that I'll link in the description and post up on Instagram too. So there's four tiers. Unconsciously incompetent. I don't know that I don't know skill X. Consciously incompetent. I know that I don't know skill X. Consciously competent. I know that I know skill X. And unconsciously competent. I don't know that I know skill X. So it is possible, and in fact, it is it is absolute that a single person will occupy multiple tiers because there's things that we know, things that we don't know, things that we know we know, things that we don't know that we don't know, etc. Unconsciously incompetent are our blind spots. That's I don't know that I don't know it. And I can't give you any examples of this for myself because that's what a blind spot is. Typically for these things, I have high unjustified confidence. <laughs> Like, I already think I know everything there is to know about subject X or skill X. And folks who are in this tier are the worst students for skill X because they don't think there's anything that they need to learn. They think they already know everything. The next tier is consciously incompetent. Put simply, I know that I don't know X. So I can list off tons of these. I know that I don't speak Russian. I know that I don't play the oboe. I know that I don't know how to fly a plane. I know that I don't know how to code in JavaScript. Like all these things that I don't know. And typically I'll feel really uncomfortable when I'm consciously incompetent because I'm aware of how much I don't know about skill X. So this also translates to low confidence, but it does translate to being a really good student. When you're consciously incompetent, you're like, oh my God, there's this thing I don't know. I need to know it. I want to know it. So there's some like drive to actually go out and learn it. The next tier is consciously competent, which are things that I know that I know. So things I know I know are like, I know how to build a website on WordPress. I know how to speak English. I know how to drive. I know how to record a podcast. <laughs> I know how to build a PowerPoint presentation. And the skills around which I'm consciously competent are typically where I remember both what it was like to not know it and what it was like to learn it. And these are areas that contribute to my confidence. And folks who are in this tier for a given skill are usually the best teachers of that skill because they remember what it was like to not know it. And finally, the last tier is unconsciously competent. These are things that I don't know that I know. So things that feel obvious, innate, natural. Like I can't remember a time when I didn't know it. If somebody asks me, Joy, what are you good at? These are the things I, I am good at, but won't list off because it's like, well, yeah, everybody knows how to do that. Like brushing my teeth or feeding myself or putting my clothes on in the morning. The fun thing about hanging out with a toddler is that it reminds me, these are things that need to be learned. Um, the toddler that I hang out with didn't come out of the womb knowing how to put on his pants or wipe his own butt. 
which means these are skills. But when we don't remember ever having learned them, it's easy to just assume, oh yeah, everybody knows how to do that. And I've always known how to do that. And what that means is that these skills that occupy our unconsciously competent space don't contribute to our confidence because it doesn't occur to me as a skill. It also makes the worst teachers. For skills where I am unconsciously competent, I am an absolutely horrible teacher. I'm a horrible teacher just generally, very ineffective. But these are the areas where I'm going to just be an absolute shit show. And I know, judgment, judgment, judgment. So why does this competency tier thing matter in the context of the recording you just heard and in the context of comparisons? Like I was saying, once I get into the unconsciously competent tier for a given skill, I no longer consider myself skillful in that skill. I'm like, everybody knows how to do it. So it doesn't contribute to my confidence. But remembering that it's a skill allows it to contribute to my confidence, allows me to see that there is a way to go from (laughs) being really ineffective at a thing to becoming effective at a thing. Comparing where I am now to like my first serious relationship in the recording that I played for you, part of what that does is it reminds me there's all these skills that I've learned since then. I'm not just at the effect of the the currents or the wind or whatever. There are actual like intentional choices and intentional learning that I did to acquire skills so that I can choose different outcomes now, different outcomes that I didn't have access to before I knew those skills. Ultimately, what I'm trying to avoid is that everything is hopeless thought train. I think I mentioned on the last episode the the idiom all roads lead to rome which made sense in the during the roman empire because rome was the only entity building roads so literally every single road that rome built would go back to rome and for me when i start ruminating when i feel sad angry ashamed afraid those emotions will trigger thoughts and if left to left to their own devices those thoughts will lead to hopelessness that's my room, or that's where my room has been. And I've also used the analogy in the past, think like a, a drop of water. A drop of water falls in Arizona. The easiest place, the most likely place for that drop of water to go is the Grand Canyon. And once that drop of water gets in the Grand Canyon, it takes a ton of effort to get that drop of water out of the Grand Canyon. And my thought ruts are like that. I have these ruts that just they autoplay. I just start and they will go completely on their own like a record. I'm, again, mixing all my metaphors here. I'm trying to create new thought ruts, a rut that is not the Grand Canyon. And the only way to do that is to stop digging the Grand Canyon deeper. (laughs) Like, I can't create new thought ruts while simultaneously also digging the old thought ruts deeper. So basically using the comparison skill, the way it functioned for me in the recording that you just heard was that it got me out of hopelessness, but only this is so, this is vital, 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 vital because I chose to do it because I chose to use that skill. And I wasn't really aware of the fact that I was using a <clears throat> skill in that moment. I was doing a, I was coping. And it turns out the way I was coping was effective and skillful. But if somebody had come into my room and was like, cheer up, you know, at least you're not back in grad school, like that can be really invalidating. 
But when I chose it for myself in the recording, it was functioning as a way to not dig my Grand Canyon deeper. It's also why my diary card is super helpful. I don't know if I've talked about diary cards on the podcast before. Seems like I must have. I've included a link to some examples in the description, but I honestly don't know if I've ever mentioned these. My experience with diary cards is that it's chiefly a DBT thing. It's possible that it's used in other forms of therapy, but I haven't experienced all those other forms of therapy. So a diary card is a way to keep track of every day, like what my emotions are, um, what urges I'm having, what behavior I'm doing, what skills I'm using. Did I take my medication? Am I eating? You know, all sorts of stuff. And there's a few basic things that are on everybody's diary card, but then there's other things that are specific to the individual. So I've included a link to some examples of diary cards that I've used personally. I have one example that is the diary card that I used in my first DBT skills group like six years ago. And then the other example is the one that I'm currently using. Both of them give me an opportunity to track my emotions every day, my urges, uh, target behaviors, things that I want to decrease. So stuff like the urge to self-harm, communicate ineffectively, seek validation externally, hopelessly ruminate, those sorts of things. And I also track things I want to increase or make sure that I'm doing every day. So like exercise, sleeping, taking my meds, blah, blah, blah. The thing that's particularly salient to this episode and what we're talking about around comparisons is that both examples of the diary card that I've posted have a list of all of the DBT skills. And every day I can circle which ones I use that day. And what that does is it forces me to remember that I'm using skills even after my use of them becomes automatic. It prevents me from becoming unconsciously competent and it keeps things in the consciously competent tier so that those things contribute to my confidence. I can remember that I'm skillful and <laughs> it keeps me from being an asshole most of the time by remembering that these are skills that I learned and at one point I didn't know them so that I can have compassion for other folks who don't know them instead of being like, well, I've always been able to do this. Can't you figure it out too? Which is also great for like interpersonal relationships. And part of why this is accessible to me in the recording that you just heard is because I've been doing this diary card practice off and on for six years. Let's see. I did it for a year the first time I was in DBT. And this time I started up again in the summer of 2021. Coming up on two years solid of doing a diary card. And that means that when I'm in distress, these things are accessible to me. If I hadn't been doing the diary card and actively working on these things, I don't know that I could have been able to access, hey, <laughs> you have skills now that you didn't have before. You can have a different outcome this time around because you're in a different place than the last time around. Keeping things unconsciously competent kind of is like putting them on a shelf at eye level. It's like, oh, this is the shelf I look at all the time, as opposed to being like on the top shelf where I can't reach it or in the garage or in storage somewhere. So that's another thing I want to mention that like the reason I was able to access those while in distress was because I have this daily practice going on. So yeah, if you want to take a look at the diary cards that I've posted, you can create your own version. I know folks who aren't in DBT who do have their own version of like things that they track every day to remind themselves to drink water, go outside, exercise, even if it's just a 10 minute walk around the neighborhood. We do more of what we pay attention to. 
And it's also really, really super helpful to keep track of the behaviors I want to decrease. Because a lot of the reason that these behaviors persist is because I'm not even aware when I'm doing them. And the way to become aware of doing them is to pay attention to when I'm doing them, which feels really self-evident. But seriously, most of the behaviors that I have that just keep persisting are the ones that I don't keep track of. So keeping track of them is actually really helpful. Alrighty, well, that's all I have on this episode. So I'm going to close things out. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being with me on this journey. I'm excited to be getting back to it and putting out an episode, at least one episode a week. I have a lot to catch up on. I have like 40 episodes backlogged that I'm trying to catch up on. So there's going to be a lot more content coming out. And already, that's all I got. So I'm just going to go ahead and end this super abrupt. This has been Let's Therapize That Shit with your host, me, Joy Gerhard. If you like what you heard, please rate, review, subscribe, and tell your friends about it. I'll see you next time. Intro and outro music is Swan Lake Opus 20 by Tchaikovsky, performed by the London Symphony Orchestra, conducted by Anatoly Fistulari, and released on LP by Richmond High Fidelity London Records in 1952.